Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here on a beautiful morning to introduce you to this week's sponsor before we hop into the incredible conversation I had with Jutha Kachal from Ledger X a couple weeks ago. This week's episode of Tales from the Crypt is sponsored by Cash App. You freaks know all about it. It's helping us stack sats. And it's also been the number one uh, finance app in the App Store for the last two years. You guys already know, it was the first peer-to-peer payments app uh, to support Bitcoin. It's the fastest and easiest way uh, in the U.S. to to buy Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfer to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly, and you can instantly withdraw to the wallet of your choice when you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys. Just use the Cash App, scan the QR code, or copy uh, your Bitcoin address into the app. It's that simple. You can send it off. Uh, on top of the Bitcoin functionalities, Cash App also comes with uh, standard banking features like direct deposits and other things your banks doesn't offer, like their Boost program, uh, go to the which uh, comes with their Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it. You freaks know all about it. I love to use my coffee shop uh, Boost to save one dollar every day. Coffee, Whole Green, like Whole Greens. What is Whole Greens? Whole Foods. Excuse me is another merchant that I used to like, like to use my uh, boost at. On top of this, you got Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin', and others. So download the Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play Store. And keep stacking sets. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent. On a, a very fitting floor for this interview, we're on the 21st floor in Midtown Manhattan. I'm not going to say the exact address, um, but I'm very excited for this interview. This is the second interview this week that's been thrown together in the last five days. I'd like to introduce you freaks to the co-founder and COO of Ledger X, Jutika Chow. Jutika, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for having me in. This is a lovely office. Thank you. Did you guys pick the 21st floor for a reason? Or was it I, a- I, wish I, could, I, I wish I could say we did, but unfortunately, it was just luck. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, it's very prescient, and we're, we're on the 21st floor. I'm excited to learn more about Ledger X. Um, I saw that you were teasing the Omni product earlier this week, so uh, really excited to see the vision that you guys have with that in particular. But before we get into that, this is Tales from the Crypt. We, uh, we like to get the story behind the person, behind the company. So how did you come to find Bitcoin and be the co-founder of this company? Uh, so it was back in 2011, um, and actually really credit to uh, my husband and our CEO, Paul. He was he had left Goldman, and he was on the West Coast uh, doing Y Combinator during that summer. And that was the first price spike um, where it went like up to $30 and came back down. Um, and, you know, we found it interesting. We both are uh, math and computer science by training and then worked in finance. So we found it interesting as a technological and financial innovation. But I think really that turning point was that, so we decided to, to you know, kind of play around in it. And it took us um, probably a good four to six weeks to get our money from Goldman through, I believe we used Dewalla at the time, to Gox to finally buy Bitcoin. And as soon as we got Bitcoin, we were able just to move it back and forth, you know, across coast on a Sunday night, no problem at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think as soon as we saw that we were sold and we knew that, um, that there was something there, it was early for starting a company, but that was when um, at least we were uh, personally, you know, committed to, to the space. Were you guys holding your own keys back on, in the Gox days? So, well, that, that was part of it too, is that, you know, we were, and we also had our own full-time jobs, and we, 
you know, I think at least knew enough to know that we didn't feel comfortable with, uh, with that setup. And so um, we actually ended up, you know, selling a lot of our Bitcoin because of that um, and then buying back in later. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think now this, the space is a lot different, but that doesn't change anything about the elegance of, uh, uh, you know, of, of what we saw back then. Yeah, that's something that Jack Dorsey mentioned when I had him on the podcast as well, was that he believes that the white paper is a seminal piece of uh, computer science and you touched on it a little bit too that you thought it was a innovation in mathematics and computer science what about bitcoin in particular sort of uh changes the landscape in your mind well you know i think if you look at the way i mean you have in normal i'm more of finance as well and you know finance economics you have um different central banks that have different uh trade-offs with respect to how they want to manage monetary policy and um, the Bitcoin protocol is a completely new and different monetary policy, you know, management really, that is a culmination of a number of um, computer science concepts, not maybe not particularly any specific one that was a breakthrough, but really the combination of them um, to create something that is, you know, is, is really unique and allows unique things that were never possible before. And that's how you know it's something that's new and innovative is when there were things that you fundamentally could not do before that you can do now. You know, you fundamentally could not get a bank account if you just had access to the internet. Now you can. Mm -hmm. That's what you were touching on before we hit record as well is the fact that it's 24 hours. You guys can take collateral at any, any given point in time. Yep, exactly. It's, you know, I think that's one of the, the use cases that, uh, you know, we at Ledger X um, see for sure that the, in the trading space, um, you know, banks and hedge funds and really any customers, they're limited by banking hours for when they can move collateral and Bitcoin can move 24-7, 365. People deposit on Saturdays, Sundays at Ledger X and can just start trading. So that's... Stay on the topic of collateral, how Bitcoin as collateral, how does it compare to other forms of collateral in the traditional system? Um, it, is having an audible blockchain sort of change the landscape in, in the collateral world as well? Well, I mean, the first thing is definitely because there are no intermediaries and like banks, you know, there's no bank holidays. There's no um, issues of transferring across different uh different um, time zones and jurisdictions and things like that. Uh, in the abstract, having something like programmable collateral was not really possible before. So you can envision with payment channels, um, there are things that we can do in the future that were not possible before. Uh, but broadly, you know, I think the ability to transfer it at any time without an intermediary is, um, is the most, uh, for us, you know, one of the most interesting things that we've seen put in play. It's interesting to see how, how you guys have grown because you've one of the few companies that's been around for, for at least five years now. You started in 2013. You've seen, you've seen a lot. Yeah, we, we have. Uh, you know, we, we really we set out to do what we're doing right now, um, but the regulatory environment was different back then. It took us a lot of time to work with regulators to get them comfortable and to ultimately get LedgerX approval. And so uh, we've been around five and a half years, but Paul kind of jokes that we're a five and a half year old company, but we're really only a year old because we really <laughs> only launched in October 2017. The first like four years was just getting regulatory approval. Handcuffs on the whole time. Yep, exactly. And uh, so how how much has the landscape of the regulatory uh, the regulatory landscape changed over the last six years? Oh, it's, it's changed a ton. You know, I think, I mean, honestly, for me being more on the ground, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of crypto companies make is that 
they don't actually give the regulators enough credit as as far as how much they actually know about Bitcoin and about the space. And it is, um, th you know, all credit to them. They really are are quite, at least in the U.S., I can only speak to, to the U.S., um, they're really quite top-notch. It's a completely different environment than it was back in uh, 2013, 2014. I think you guys were, were wise to, to approach the CFTC. It seems like commodities guys really got Bitcoin more innately than, than uh, other areas of, of the trading world. Yeah, it was it was a risk. Um, we, you know, in January 2014, when we decided to go down this path, uh, it was super risky. We went all in on the CFTC. We stacked our board with CFTC people. We hired CFTC lawyers. We uh, we just took that gamble. You know, our view was that it wasn't, you know, because Bitcoin is not issued by any central, uh, you know, company or government or anything. We took the view that it didn't look like a security, it resembled more like a gold, like a commodity, you know, maybe elements of a currency as well. And the definition of a commodity is quite broad. So we were uh, highly leveraged towards the CFTC asserting jurisdiction over it, but uh, fortunately they did. There's regulation, obviously, Bitcoin is free open source software. A lot of hardcore Bitcoiners are anti regulation, anti state. How is it, how's it been sort of working? Uh, with the different types of personalities in this space and, and trying to be a leader and a sort of bridge to these, to these regulators that I would argue are an inevitability to deal with at the end of the day. Yeah. It's so I would say it's gotten better. I think because um, people have realized that, you know, in certain use cases or certain contexts, there has to be regulation. Definitely in the early days of 2014, we ostracized ourselves a lot. Um, for, you know, for obvious reasons. But ultimately, you know, where we come out is that the, you know, the bridges between fiat and Bitcoin, anytime you're going to touch fiat or you're going to oversee anything that allows exchanging Bitcoin to fiat and back and forth, that's going to be regulated just no matter what. And so I think now people have come to accept that. Once you have Bitcoin, then you can do whatever you want outside of the purview of regulators. And I think there are a lot of um, very powerful uh, elements to that for sure. Do you see, uh, actually, it's a random tangent I'm interested to go down. Do you see a closed loop Bitcoin system ever evolving? Like um, a closed I, I, loop in the fact that people are just using Bitcoin. It's a unit of account uh, in uh, either an internet economy, maybe a meat space economy to an extent. Um, I think I think it will really depend on the geography. You know, I can see. I think in some areas where fiat is not as either um, reliable or even just where the government isn't doesn't have as much control over it, I could see those starting to evolve more and more. You know, particularly, um, I think in some of the cross-border. Uh, transactions in Africa where, you know, we're seeing developers start to accept Bitcoin directly and then, um, and use it. I think in the U S it'll be complementary, Um, and I think that's a, that's a very fair thing. There are things that, you know, people will continue to use fiat for. There's not a ton of, I'd say the everyday person in the U S doesn't have a ton of frictions with their, you know, JP Morgan Chase account. Uh, but Bitcoin can be complementary for sure. It's fun to see it evolve. I'm actually building a site or trying to, uh, experiment like a closed loop Bitcoin uh, system, uh, but it is there are pain points. So you need cash at the end of the day. So right. Well, I mean, and, and and you know, we see that Ledgerx, we see that with um, uh, even some of our customers. Ultimately, even you know, miners, for example, 
they have to pay their bills. They have to pay their people, you know, their expenses that exist in cash. Um, so I think at this point, it's more the, um, the bridge and intersection between them that seems to be most robust. A lot of the arguments people will make is that the, these use cases and these functionalities will come with liquidity. Uh, and the precursor to liquidity is infrastructure and uh, being able to get the money into the asset class. So where do you think we are right now um, compared to 2017, compared to 2014 from uh, an on-ramp infrastructure for people with enough money to move these markets? Well, we're definitely evolved from 2014 for sure. I think there's just more, there's more stability. Um, there's more regulatory clarity. There's more uh, differentiation between platforms specializing in different things. Um, 2017 was a little bit much in terms of the, the price appreciation. And I think it's been good to um, kind of weed out some of the, the craziness and, and the crazy speculation and everybody who's still in Bitcoin right now is, you know, they're working on, on projects or in it for the long term. So I think those are all good. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the market cap is still, um, it's very reasonable for, you know, companies like LedgerX and, um, and stuff, but it's not super meaningful to like a company like Goldman Sachs. And so I think it's just going to be a, um, a steady cadence where as the market cap appreciates, it'll start to get interesting to maybe billion dollar funds and then, you know, $5 billion funds. And then ultimately at some point we'll get to really the, the mass adoption, but we have to acknowledge that, you know, at this size, it's not really going to be interesting to the very, very large institutions. The infrastructure on top of Bitcoin is very important, but also at the, uh, not infrastructure at the protocol, level, but Bitcoin at the protocol level is, uh, not a hurdle, but it is a, a factor, something to factor in with these, the onboarding of the masses. So, as an observer, if somebody's been in the space, like, what do you think about Bitcoin uh, protocol development? Are you anything you're looking out for? We were talking about Lightning Network a little bit earlier, but anything else? Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think Lightning is is interesting, at least for us, especially because as we talked about um, accepting um, Bitcoin as a form of collateral. Unfortunately, I'm not actually as up on the protocol as I should be in some of the um, BIPs that are out there. But I think generally, you know, it's what I find most interesting is that. Um, in a lot of ways, a lot of the challenges are political in nature. You know, now that you have this uh, this protocol that's not owned by any any central counterparty, and I think we've navigated Bitcoin has navigated some of those um, political challenges already, and will continue to over time. But I think those are interesting. And I think once there's more uh, of a track record of having navigated those, I think it'll give more comfort to uh, broader adoption as well. It's one thing I like to say on this podcast is that uh, we learn Bitcoin is like an expanding universe that we discover every day as we get as we get uh, more blocks produced, more more people using it. And you sort of we're sort of still feeling out the edges of what this protocol can do and how we should interact uh, with it. And so one uh, narrative that's been floating around more recently is like Bitcoin at the protocol layer should probably serve like this Hal, Hal Finney uh, vision of Bitcoin banks that the protocol layers. Uh, sort of designated for large transactions and settlement, like a settlement network and use things like Lightning Network and other second and third layer solutions to leverage the assurances of the protocol. So just curious to see, it, like scaling this, do you think it's a like a, a reserve currency at the protocol level? Do you think we should try to do as many transactions as possible? Um, just curious to hear that. I mean, I can see the... Um I could see the the natural evolution to, 
using you know to having the the bitcoin protocol in the way that it is which is purposely expensive and inefficient and then having things like lightning network to actually make uh transactions more palatable you know i mean we at ledger x uh, are you know doing continuous derivatives trades we don't settle those to the blockchain um for obvious reasons it would be extremely inefficient and expensive to do um but you know to the extent that there are you know lightning evolves and there are ways that we can start um doing it more efficiently then i think you can see that uh, for, at least for us i can see that in our in our pipeline as um as a, a setup that works you know that keeps the protocol what it is but works to um to make transactions better all right so yeah so let's dive into like what you guys are, are doing with your options and swaps what you plan on doing with omni um and like you said, you, you set out on this mission. You feel like you're you're sort of fulfilling the mission that you set out on five, six years ago. Now at this point, what, what is that mission, and and how did it did it come to fruition? We always felt that derivatives were going to be very important to the maturation of the Bitcoin market, both in terms of uh, a direct way for people to hedge, whether they're individuals that are holding Bitcoin or companies that hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And they essentially take on the price volatility risk as a way to insulate their end customer, whether it's a merchant or consumer from that risk, which is a very important function. Or um, even just generally the history of derivatives reducing, the introduction of derivatives reducing volatility in an asset class. And obviously lower volatility leads to more stability. So we, we always thought that, that was going to be important. Um, I, you know, my background and I think a lot of the products that I find most interesting are options in particular. So that's kind of what we're known for, um, that we do have just a buy-sell Bitcoin product. And, uh, you know, it took us a while to get the regulatory approval, but ultimately we launched it. And, you know, we've seen... Um, I think a lot of whether it's high net worth individuals or miners or companies in the Bitcoin space, um, people really using these in, in ways that I think you know are helping them grow and expand their business and take on additional risk where they otherwise uh, wouldn't be able to do that. And you know now our goal with Omni is to open up that product set and that offering and the proven regulated platform to a much wider range of customers. Yeah, this. Uh that's why I'm fascinated by the options and swaps you're providing, particularly for miners, because they have a lot of risks that they're taking on, and you guys help, let, help them hedge that risk. Uh, so I guess for miners specifically, if we could jump into like how Ledger X helps them hedge for the future. Sure. So you know we kind of alluded to before, miners have uh, bills that they have to pay, and mm -hmm. you know in the form of dollars, and so they have a couple options um, when you know they need liquidity so they can you know right now bitcoin's like 5400 so they can sell a bitcoin at 5400 uh which will give them you know a 5400 dollars worth of cash or they could sell a call option on ledger x uh, maybe a one-year call option and they can sell that and maybe collect a thousand dollars and that allows them to collect a thousand dollars today that they can still use to pay their bills and maybe the call option is struck at $10,000. So they don't necessarily have to sell their Bitcoin. They just pledge their Bitcoin. If Bitcoin ends below $10,000, they get it back. And then if it ends above $10,000, then they end up selling their Bitcoin at $10,000, which is still better than selling it at $5,400. Mm -hmm. So, you know, miners can use options and particularly, uh, I'll note Ledger X options because our options are dollar denominated. And that's why our license was so hard to get. Um, but they can use Ledger X options to obtain dollars today 
and and essentially capture the volatility premium that's embedded in the options um, rather than just selling their Bitcoin. And so it's a more, for many of our um, minor customers, it's a more economic, you know, economically beneficial strategy than just selling Bitcoin. It's fascinating because the mining world is is ruthless, right? You're buying hardware, you got very low margins if your energy prices aren't, aren't in place. And I think the emergence of these markets are imperative if we're going to move, move forward and, uh, Importantly, like decentralized mining, like you're, you're going to need people with not as much capital as the big miners to, to be able to hedge. Yep. And, you know, we I would say f- today our products like our options and our swaps are not they're taking things that worked in the traditional world. And we do some amount of um, innovating to make them work for Bitcoin, but they're not particularly Bitcoin specific. But some of the products that we have in mind for further down the line I think are you know, like transaction fee contracts, hash rate contracts. Those are things that really are Bitcoin specific. And um, we actually recently announced our, uh, we have a, a having contract that we'll be launching soon, you know, around next year's having. And I think those are the things that are both uh, interesting, but also will be really important to miners and folks in the space. Let's dive into um, uh, a f- like a fee, a fee contract or a hashing contract. What, what would that look like? And, and why would somebody engage in this? So, you know, we, I mean, actually, I'll, I'll talk about our having contract and, the, you know, yeah. it, it'll tie into how fees would work. Uh, so the way that that one works is it's a binary wager on when the having will occur. So obviously miners, you know, let's say, a, it, you know, a bunch of computer power starts coming online and it happens a lot earlier than miners are exposed to that. And on the other side, to the extent that you believe that if the mining, as the mining reward is halved, transaction fees would go up higher to compensate miners, anyone who's just any consumer facing company or anyone who's uh, transacting on the blockchain frequently would face risk on the other side. That's, mm-hmm. no, it's uh, fascinating. I'd, I'd never. So that's the having contract. Is that the one that you were teasing yesterday? Oh, no, that was December 2020. Excuse me. So the having is <laughs> yeah. about probably yeah. around Memorial Day next year. Yep. And, and actually, what's what's really cool about it is the way that we're going to um, launch it is there'll be a number of different expirations in which you know folks can speculate, hedge and speculate on when the happening will occur. So we'll be able to back out a forecast for when the market actually thinks the happening will occur. I just had an idea go off my head. Are you guys going to start... Uh measuring expiry dates via block times you think or block heights more particularly well so this is so funny it's funny that you asked that because this i call it the having contract if you look at our formal filing on the um, on our website with the cftc it's a block height contract yeah. it, and, and it's beautiful i mean there is no i firmly believe there is no contract in the world that is as difficult to manipulate as the this contract that settles to the bitcoin blockchain right because you'd have to you have to screw up the difficulty adjustment. Exactly. Exactly. It's it, it's irrefutable, and that's where I think when we talk about like hash rate options and some of those, I mean, we'll just settle to the difficulty, and everybody agrees on it. You don't have to worry about you know, oh, did was the uh, this centralized exchange you know move this price around or anything like that. That's why I'm fascinated by you and your husband for starting this because you traditional, and it seems that I mean, it seems that more and more people from the traditional financial world are coming around to Bitcoin, but it seems like such a fundamental. It seems like something fun to play with for for somebody who's financial minded. So what do you think it's going to take to sort of convince the uh, I don't want to say Luddites, but uh, the 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 uh, the old timers in the financial world? You know, 
honestly, interestingly enough, the the people that I do see who are convinced, it's usually because their kids are playing around with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's something to that where I mean, and that was the same with because um, at the time when Paul and I got into Bitcoin, as I mentioned, he was at Y Combinator, but I was still working at Goldman in New York, and just being able to send it, send Bitcoin back and forth to each other, it's just. I think once you play around with it um, and then you like see it on a block explorer and it's just super cool. Um, But you know, I don't, it's just really hard. And I have a lot of great things to say about Goldman, but it's really hard for me to see them. It's really hard for me to see, you know, innovation in this space come from an institution like that, just because of institutional, you know, factors that make it difficult for them to be as nimble as, you know, a startup like us can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the Y Combinator uh, upstart probably has a better chance of being <laughs> nimble. And and so that, did that benefit you early on with the, with the regulatory stuff? Were... Um, I mean, honestly, so the, the regulatory space is very, everybody knows each other. And so we were outsiders. So it took us a while to gain the trust of the regulators um, and really to prove to them that we want to be regulated. Um, so it took us a while, uh, but now that we've navigated it, I would say now it's we have a much better understanding and I think um, hopefully a much better mutual respect for each other, both the regulators for us and obviously us for them. What type of clarity are you looking for? Obviously, relationships and there has been more regulatory clarity up to this point from when you first started. Obviously, we still have ways to go. Um, for me in particular, I think around taxing and, and uh, securities with the SEC and sort of de-alienating between the d- different regulators and jurisdictions and stuff like that. So w- w- as a COO of an options company, what are you looking at? Yeah, so I, I definitely agree taxes. Uh, that's something that uh, comes up from our participant base a lot. Um, so regulatory clarity around taxes. Um, I would like to see international more clarity internationally. You know, I think that the U.S. That's asking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, cause it's because otherwise, what it does is it puts it puts companies in difficult, like startups, in difficult positions because you know we you either you want to know okay if you are going to operate here are a clear set of rules and regulations and guidelines to operate by. Um, and then, okay, if you don't do that, then don't operate. But instead, it puts startups in difficult positions because we don't really know, can we operate there? And if we start operating and you change your mind, you know, things like that. So I would like to see that. Um, in the U.S., I think we're, we're getting pretty close. I know that the SEC, there's some questions about what's a security and what's not. Um, but at least for Bitcoin in the U.S., I think we're pretty good in terms of, you know, where what falls into the states, what falls into the CFTC, um, and then, you know, hopefully on, on taxes soon. Yeah, no, the tax stuff is it's daunting. Right? Well, so, yeah, and so the tax, so part of the reason, so we talked about Omni from the point of view of a retail license, but for us, one of the really critical parts is that it allows us to do futures, and currently mm-hmm. we do swaps, and swaps do not get beneficial tax treatment and it's, it's really a relic of dot frank it was a lot of the they changed they literally made it very clear that uh, commodity swaps do not fall into this and it was designed for interest rate swaps and credit default swaps but our swaps are part of it so part of the reason we're doing futures is that futures have clear taxation uh in the u.s as commodity futures and so that'll give both clarity as well as beneficial tax treatment to uh to our customers something 
is actually another part of this industry, which is uh, sort of exchanges and uh, custodians alike providing their users with like good information about what they did on their platform in a given year. Some are better than others. And sort of what's your approach with the, the customer experience of, of trading on your network and, and letting them know what happened at the end of the year? We, I like to think that we, we do a pretty good job. We provide um, monthly balance statements of all your activity and balances the same way that uh, you would get from a bank. Um, so I, I, I like to think that, that our customers are pretty happy with that. Um, and, we, and keep in mind, we get, you know, LedgerX gets audited. Um, we went through our second full audit this year was completed. Uh, again, received an unqualified opinion, which is a clean bill of health. And so we are... We're held to extremely high standards. What's that auditing process like? You know, it's it's very it is a lot more involved than I actually ever thought before I went through our first one. I didn't realize um, how much they go into it. But um, you know, to the same way that I was saying that people don't give regulators enough credit, I think they don't give auditors enough credit either. Our auditors are, I mean, they're running their own node. We had to sign. Uh, they picked a, a really? whole bunch. They they picked they're running a whole, their own node. They picked a whole bunch. Uh, yep, they're running their own node. They so they verified everything. They won't even use a block explorer. Like they verified everything themselves. Wow. Um. Yep. They made a sign message for a bunch of addresses, and then they ran verify message themselves. And uh, so it was, it was pretty intense. Well, I did, didn't realize. Uh the auditors were, were that up to, to speed, yep. running nodes, pulling the blocks themselves, making sure you went feeding the bad information. Yep, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. That's great to see. Yeah. And you got to think for them, like an auditor, like this technology is like inherently interesting to them, right? Because it's a, an auditing system at the end. I mean, it's crazy because, yeah, exactly. It's um, actually it's funny because Paul wrote a blog post last year at our, after our first one was like literally called auditing and auditing technology. But it's crazy because having gone through it, you look at what they do for U.S. dollars, which is they essentially just ask the bank like, hey, do you have the dollars that they say you have? And then for Bitcoin, it's like they can just run their own node. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, and this is um, so somebody who's come from like uh, a derivatives desk at Goldman and, and creating sort of a not reason, yeah, well, margin putting value at risk with with U.S. dollars on those desks and uh, making sure there's not too much synthetic. What's uh, how am I trying to phrase this? So Bitcoin basically makes it so that you cannot be, uh, your reserve ratio has to be sort of in line. Um, how does this change compared to like the desks that you were working on before um, with the collateral that you're using? So, you know, I came, I came more from uh, like the, um, just like the equity option side. Interestingly enough, having been a trader, I only realized after starting LedgerX that I actually knew very, very little about what was happening at the infrastructure level in terms of the clearing and mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, how things were settling and where funds and, uh, and stocks are being held. Uh, but, you know, it, as it pertains to us, um, kind of come back to this fact that because we can accept collateral 24-7, 365, I think it just generally is more efficient for the system and less risky for the system. Um, at Goldman, you know, we used to have to over-collateralize by up to 40% sometimes at 4 p.m. with the clearinghouses because you didn't know if something was going to move overnight and if you tried to submit a trade for clearing, if there wasn't enough collateral, then the clearinghouses would decay the trade. Uh, so I think this is, you know, I think Bitcoin allows um, you know, much more uh, efficient, robust trading. 
What's the world with 24 7, 365 markets like? Like, how, how much different is it then? Uh, you're touching on it here. Like, obviously, there's stark differences in, in the availability to collateral and liquidity whenever. And does this open up a lot of sort of untapped economic activity in your mind? Well, I th- you know, I think, yeah, I think the biggest thing is the, you know, especially the efficiencies of like everybody around the world trading the same thing, which is kind of what happens in FX, but it's like FX, you transfer the risk across. Uh, I see it as, you know, it's 24-7, 365, which is functionally true. Uh, but in practice, I kind of see it as two markets. We have like U.S. hours and Asian hours. Mm-hmm. So it's like very, uh, very peaky in that manner. Um, but it's, it's good. I mean, I think it's, it shows how Bitcoin is really a global phenomenon talking about Asian hours and U.S. hours, one thing I pointed out or somebody pointed out to me earlier this week was like, you can tell when BitMEX, some BitMEX, uh, when they close out, they do their withdrawals once a day at 9 a.m. And you can tell in the mempool that that BitMEX is closing out their their trades. It's like, that's fascinating. So, and they're obviously batching like once a day. So when it comes to actually transacting on the blockchain, what's your, what's your strategy for for being as efficient as possible. Did uh, John we, Newberry coming in from <laughs> Bitcoin Optech and, and yelling at you? Uh, we, we batch as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, we also don't settle our, you know, we settle our trades to our internal ledger as, mm-hmm. as everybody, um, you know, does. Uh, so we settle, for most of our trading activities, just the internal ledger, which is obviously, again, cheaper and faster than the Bitcoin blockchain. And then um, when we do need to touch the blockchain, we batch it. Do you have like a set cadence of touching the blockchain? Like, or we're going to do it at this time every week or yeah you don't internally yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's something that because it's something you have to think about right it's mm-hmm. uh yeah you have to think about using it when others aren't <laughs> yeah as do as do individual users as do um i'm sorry i'm just like rambling in my head yeah. here now this is fascinating uh beyond trading and and sort of options and swaps markets like what good do you see bitcoin bringing the world like you're talking about remittance sending it well, I mean, I, I always come back to just, and I, I, I'm not purporting to have experienced this, obviously, myself in real life, but my understanding is that there's 2 billion people in the world who are unbanked, and it's for reasons like they don't have an appropriate like birth certificate, which actually my, even my family in India um, doesn't have. They don't live close enough to a bank. They can't meet account minimums. You know, there's fundamentally something that is now possible for them that wasn't possible before. And especially if you look at places like in Africa where they may not have infrastructure, but people have cell phones. And so with a cell phone, they can now, you know, accept payment. And if you believe that it is in a way a fundamental human right to be able to accept payment for providing goods and services, then you have to believe that Bitcoin is just a really good thing. Uh, My wife works in advertising she works with a couple of venezuelans one of which said to use bitcoin to send back to her parents for for medicine that in particular like proves that this is there's something here oh right? totally and you know i i'm not like a i'm not really very well versed in like macroeconomic theory or anything but i mean at the very least when you look at something like venezuela you have to at least acknowledge that having an alternative like bitcoin is a good thing Again, not saying that Bitcoin needs to replace everything, but having an alternative is a good thing. It's, it's a good thing. It's a heavy thing, right? Because the, uh, the light, we've t- been talking about the Lightning Network, like the Lightning Network torch went from Wales to Iran to Israel. And I think somebody tried to send it to Gaza, but, um, <laughs> but it's really like abruptly in the face, like you're dealing with regulators as well, but there's also like things that they can't do. Like yeah. they can't stop that. And I think that's something I'm very interested to see going forward. Like maybe the second decade of Bitcoin's life is, uh, how do governments react to this this sort of 
something they they have to confront abruptly. It's yeah, like especially Trump just announced another round of sanctions against these countries, and now uh, there's European countries in the EU saying, "Hey, I don't, we don't know if we want to go along with that." And so, like you were saying, can we get the world to get on the same page? May not look like it, and maybe we don't even need them to because there's nothing they can do about this. Yeah, I mean, and, and how they, I, I totally agree. It's, it'll be interesting to see. And I think, you know, part of the reason that we ended up starting Let Drex in December 2013 is that in November 2013, I don't know if you remember this, but there were these Senate hearings uh, about Bitcoin and digital currency in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially where they said that, where they made it very clear that they were going to be open to regulating Bitcoin. And the reason is because they didn't want it to go overseas. And so not only do you have how our government's going to react, but now you have all these nation states that are wondering what other nation states are going to do. And uh, I think it's, it's an interesting dynamic, but it's certainly um, powerful that people can move, you know, whether, whether governments like it or not, at the very least you have to acknowledge it's extremely powerful that people can uh, move currency, you know, across borders without, intermediaries yeah no it is right because it's uh it's like a -a whack-a-mole you try to smash it down in one place it's going to pop up in another exactly um being from india what are your thoughts on the indian government what they're doing uh it seems they're being pretty (laughs) harsh on on bitcoin companies you know honestly i haven't even actually followed that as as much as i should are they being pretty bad yeah i think they're they're not allowing cracking down on bitcoin exchanges yeah i think unicorn has to close up shop oh geez yeah i mean ultimately it's that's it's the risk anytime you know anytime you're touching fiat in particular because the governments in the extent they control the banking system once they get the banks then they can get the businesses and that was even in the early days i mean 2014 like banking was a nightmare for bitcoin companies and it kind of goes to show the power of just how you can really suck the oxygen out of uh the space by just you know cutting down on the banking side right is that something you worry about now not as much now Mm -hmm. it's a lot better well i I shouldn't say a lot better it's better um there are some banks that are publicly known for um being very active and involved in the space and what's nice is they um they can get really involved in understanding the different businesses so they can feel comfortable about what you're doing and um and so so it's it's better now but it's like 2014 i think we spent i personally spent the first like six nine months of the company just focused on getting a banking relationship. Yeah, now it's it's uh, again another so another on the same topic. Like, do you think there's a threshold at which there's like a point of no return, and it's like okay, it's here, it's a thing. Like, what does the world look like at that point where everybody just has to throw their hands up and submit to the fact that Bitcoin is here and probably going to be here? I mean, I kind of think that if it wasn't going to be here, it just wouldn't, it would already not be here. You mm-hmm. know I mean? It, whether it's like the price action or what, I think everything, you know, we see enough people and companies who are in it for the long term. We see enough, um, you know, funds. Like, I'm a, I'm a markets-driven person. And if it wasn't going to be here, I think the markets would have made it not here. Um, so I think we're, we're already at that point. It's just a matter of it is still a you know, maybe like a series A stage company. And so it's just a matter of it maturing and um, and growing over time. Slowly but surely. That's what we say a lot here. It's happening. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, like you said, like you've seen vast changes over the last six years. And it seems like things are, are trending towards progress and, and good things. All right, let's end it on your December 2020 uh, 15K call <laughs> options. 
so you tweeted this is this is the reason why we're sitting here i saw this tweet and uh said all right i gotta i gotta speak with Juthika about what you guys are doing so december 2020 15k call options traded at 100x implies there's a 25 percent chance bitcoin is above 15k at the end of 2020 you said eight percent chance by the end of 2019 correct yep um so how are you able to derive this from these contracts i guess for the freaks out there so you know one of the great things about options you know options have a they have a time duration in the future and a strike price and we can use the same models that people use to price options, particularly like Black-Scholes model. So uh, typically if you're a trader, you'll put in a bunch of inputs, use a Black-Scholes model, and it gives you a price. Um, so what I do is I look at the price, put a bunch of inputs, and back into um, you know, certain interesting information. And what I think is really more uh, intuitive, you know, I was an options trader, and the options data is incredibly rich, but it's extremely hard to develop you know, intuitive understanding of what it means. I can tell you that trade traded at $425, but that doesn't mean anything to you. And so we are both working on, um, actually it's on our website, we've launched the LedgerX Oracle, which is designed uh, to do a lot of what I do with my Twitter, which is just make it um, intuitive, easy to understand, but it's real markets and real pricing. And um, I think it's important for, I mean, one is it's interesting, but two is it's also important for a lot of, whether it's uh, trading shops or investors or people building businesses uh, or people risk managing businesses, those kinds of things are important for them to um, to kind of understand and have uh, in their planning and, and you know their view of the world. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, I mean, Bitcoiners are degenerate gamblers, a, a, <laughs> lot, of the, a lot of them are at least, so putting... Uh, probabilities on price and certain dates in the future is always fun. It definitely perks people's ears up. <laughs> Bitcoin Tina is probably yelling right now. It's going to be higher. Twenty five percent chance. That's it. No, there were definitely. I think there were some people who responded like, like I think it's ninety percent. I was like, that's great, but the, the model's not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I think twenty five percent is a pretty high chance. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty good. Jessica, it's been a pleasure. Uh, before we part here, do you have a parting note? For the freaks out there, anybody interested in Bitcoin, uh, interested in trading Bitcoin on Ledger X, come come trade options on Omni. And Omni ten thousand k minimum, correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, um, 10, which 000, and it'll come down over time. Ten thousand dollar minimum, not ten thousand k. That was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on such short notice. Yeah. Thank you. Peace and love, freaks. Take care. <laughs>